Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, and all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 169 of Dunzo. It is me. Um, actually, Troy McKeady couldn't be here today, and I'm going to be taking over. I am his alter ego, Baby Jane, his 1940s bottle blonde pinup alter ego. Um, I'm so excited about today's episode. Like, was not excited three weeks ago, but now, now I'm very, very much into this. I am a back to basics stand. <laughs> I stand back to basics. It only took me 20 years, but God damn it. I am here for it. We are officially saying farewell to chaps, lip piercings, clit piercings, dreadlocks, black scents, and we are saying hello to red lips, to bottle blonde, and Motown inspired throwbacks we are entering the back to basics era today full speed and i think i mentioned last week that so many of you have messaged me specifically about this album which was a huge surprise to me because i didn't know like i will be 100 honest and saying i didn't know i didn't know that so many people loved this album i didn't know that it was so acclaimed I just really didn't know a lot about it to be honest with you um I knew like the singles I knew Candyman and I knew Ain't No Other Man but aside from that that was uh that was my extensive knowledge of Back to Basics I know for sure that that iconic belt from the breakdown of Ain't No Other Man has lived rent-free in my brain for at least 20 hours a day for almost 20 years I don't know about you but I constantly have that song in my head and if anything doing this episode exposed that I was like oh I'm always belting that in my head which is weird and I will also say before we get started that in doing research for this episode the entire back to basics thing finally made sense to me and it made sense to me now more than it ever had now that I'm on this Christina Aguilera journey the fact that Christina is finally making the throwback album that she's been dreaming of since she was a kid, the purest definition of blue-eyed soul. I definitely didn't put any thought into that in 2006, and I honestly don't think many people knew instinctively why this album was probably so important for her to make, or that Stripped really did have to run so that this one could fly. The fact that she demanded creative freedom and then once she got it, like naturally as a 21 year old who had been told what to do for years, she made this angsty, pissed off album, very like teenage girl on Mari saying that she drinks strawberry wine coolers and that her parents can't tell her what to do. And she wears short shorts and bras and the boys love it all kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, of course she made some pissed off, angsty, angry, you know, sexually driven, I've got my clip pierced and you can't stop me album as a 21 year old. Like that makes complete sense. But back to basics now feels like even more of an artistic peak. You know what I mean? Like 
obviously stripped was iconic and amazing and all the things that we've talked about but as far as like artistry i mean this is like this is insane and of course because it's me i'm endlessly fascinated by the reinvention and the rebrand of her public image for this project and i used to sort of make fun of it and i'm pretty sure even on this podcast i've joked about christina being a confused can can girl um and as you know i've used it as an example of her trying too hard and being confused about her image and all that stuff but i have an entirely new perspective i'm still gonna be making fun of her because she's hurt me so much in the past but i really do respect this album now speaking of i do think it's worth mentioning that the press the press the media surrounding christina aguilera in 2006 around her behavior was at an all-time low And it's not like she had ever been some sort of like media darling, but my God, by this time, she had really established this hostile relationship with the media um, to the point that they all started sort of exposing her for her, in quotes, diva antics. So we'll get to it. I also, of course, have some follow-up Rolling Stone articles because this podcast is basically sponsored by Rolling Stone at this point, Rolling Stone Weekly's. If you're listening, can we talk? Please reach out. Let me know. (laughs) The last thing I'll say before we get into the real meat and potatoes of the episode, I want to talk about her marriage to Jordan Bratman because they started dating in late 2002, early 2003, which is where we sort of left off in our previous episode. Um, And this is who she ended up having children with. And I think that this was, I mean, this had to have been the most like profound relationship in her life. So I want to do that. Actually, fuck it. Let's just start with Jordan because why not? Allow me to first tell you who this man is because I had no real knowledge of what his gig was. Um, Christina very infamously dates non-famous men, which I think is super smart. So I don't even know if I've ever heard what this guy's voice sounds like. Um, So let's talk about him for a minute. Jordan was actually super successful when she met him. He got his start working as a music intern in New York City and New York City, and in the late 90s, uh, Dallas Austin noticed how good Jordan was at finding up-and-coming talent. So Dallas hired him as the head of A&R for D-A-R-P, for DARP Music, um, and he was hugely successful with that. He worked with Madonna and Michael Jackson and TLC and his future wife's future nemesis pink etc so he ends up getting hired as the guy who assembles soundtracks for films by irving azoff who we know works closely with christina um, most notably bad boys and honey can we do like a 12-part series on jessica alba starring in honey i used to babysit just as a side note i used to babysit this kid and her older sister when i was a manny and her older sister was obsessed with the movie honey And to the point that she would watch it like every single day, she was like a middle school kid and she would watch it every single day and she would practice all of Jessica Alba's moves. And I would just sit in the living room on my Nokia or like on my T-Mobile sidekick and like she'd be in the background popping and locking and shit like Jessica Alba and Honey. And it's taken me all these years to realize the irony and how I wish that I would have looked up and really paid attention because it's just so absurdly early 2000s. Honey, ugh. 
So cut to 2002, Christina flies to Atlanta to work with him on music and they have this immediate connection, immediate sparks. They are basically head over heels in love the minute they meet each other. And it was at this point that they basically never stopped communicating. And then not long after, he ended up moving to L.A. and they became inseparable. They were spending all of their time together. He was basically living at her house. And she told Insile Magazine that after Jordy moved to L.A., they became joined at the hip and he became her solid. Now, maybe I'm looking in all the wrong places. And if that's the case, please feel free to let me know. But so much about this relationship has been scrubbed from the internet. I'm assuming by Christina's people. And I know that Christina was publicly dating this guy from 2002 to 2003. And I know that it was written about because Christina literally ended 2003 as Billboard's female pop artist of the year. She was so famous, like more famous than she had ever been or ever would be. So it's odd that any articles from that time period relating to this relationship are so impossible to find. I can't imagine that they weren't being written about, but also at the same time, Christina has always been really smart when it comes to dating these not famous people, probably because her alleged celebrity hookups were so highly publicized at the beginning of her career. Um, maybe she like learned a thing or two. I don't know. I did find this People Magazine article from 2005 that says their weekend trip was supposed to be a quiet getaway, but Christina Aguilera, 24, got a romantic surprise when she entered her, 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 her hotel room on February 11th. Boyfriend Jordan Bratman, 27, had filled it with rose petals, balloons, gifts, and handwritten poems. When the singer opened the last box to find a five-carat diamond and platinum ring he helped design, Bratman got down on one knee and popped the question. Aguilera's reaction... I've been floating ever since. I also found this really amazing uh, InStyle magazine article that detailed their wedding. And I don't think that I've gotten to scratch this itch since Whitney and Bobby. So you really are going to have to indulge me because I, I took a lot of notes about their wedding. <laughs> so their wedding festivities started the week prior. They had a lavish rehearsal dinner at Auberge de Solil Resort. And Christina and Jordan asked their guests to make donations to Hurricane Katrina instead of getting them gifts which side note could you imagine being a person from louisiana during that time and like having somebody come to rebuild your house and being like oh by the way this was um david geffen's gift to christina aguilera at her wedding is your porch have fun they also threw a party in santa monica to celebrate their upcoming wedding and introduce their families so jordan carried christina through the threshold of the restaurant and the tables were all covered in rose petals with mini uh, wedding cakes, which I think is really cute. Christina and Jordan got married at an estate in Napa Valley surrounded by fuchsia, blush, and deep red roses. Christina wore a custom Christian Lacroix gown with a super elaborate ruffled train. She also wore a vintage diamond encrusted rosary and Christian Louboutin heels. They exchanged handwritten vows and lit candles to signify their union for a traditional Jewish ceremony. And if you know anything about Christina Aguilera, you know that she's obsessed with December and Christmas. She puts up like 30 Christmas trees in her house every year. So she hired Michael uh, Gapinski, the famous wedding planner, to create a chic winter-themed reception. They used a snowy 
palette of ivory, cream, and white under silver accents, and they lined the walls with hundreds of birch trees. The tables were also covered in silk cloth with faux fur, eek. Um, she had glitter-dipped white hydrangeas, roses, amaryllis, and branches as centerpieces. The chandeliers were also woven with branches and crystals. It was as over-the-fucking-top and tacky as you would expect Christina Aguilera's wedding to be, but this is fun. Wedding food is also extremely important to me, so I feel it necessary to read this entire quote. It says, Friends like Sharon Stone were treated to a menu of the couple's comfort food favorites, including roasted chicken, short ribs, and family-style sides like macaroni and cheese, mashed potatoes, and onion rings. We didn't want to put people off by only serving fancy food, Aguilera said. For dessert, Sam Godfrey of Perfect Endings created a five-tier white chocolate cake, which was adorned with hot pink roses. During the reception, Christina slipped into a white satin mini dress that was designed by her stylist, Simone Harouche. Christina took to the stage to belt a jazz rendition of her hit song, Lady Marmalade. <laughs> she also performed the Etta James classic, At Last, and dedicated it to Jordan. Aguilera expressed to her guests that she had been singing Etta James for many years in concert, uh, but this was the first time she had ever sang the song and felt its true meaning. For the after party, guests were moved from the winter-themed reception to the estate's wine cave, which was transformed into a disco with red velvet walls and sofas. DJ AM performed early and performed until early morning while guests danced, drank pink champagne, and snacked on chocolate chip cookies and chicken and waffles. This sounds like a real fucking hoedown. I don't know about you, but I would live. Macaroni and cheese, chicken and waffles. You had me at glitter-dipped roses. Like, literally say no more. DJ AM, this is perfection. I have a quote from the previously mentioned 2006 Rolling Stone. This is a random part of it where they actually do talk a little bit about Jordan. It says, uh, last time she was on the cover of Rolling Stone in 2002, Christina was singing the praises of casual sex literally in the song called Get Mine, Get Yours, and she laughed out loud when I reminded her that she said her ideal dates were boys with flavor. If she was looking for a, if she was looking for a mensch with flavor, she was in luck. I got myself a nice Jewish guy, she says about Bratman, with her teeth beaming like the fat rock on her finger. Christina and Bratman met in Atlanta when she was recording in the studio. At the time, he was working for her management company. I was ready to give up on men, she says. At that point, I'd never had a positive male in my life, ever. I had a lot of walls up, but Jordan kept proving to me that he was there for me. She remembered the time before stripped as a rough patch, with the piercings and all that, along with the turbulence of her childhood pain and her feelings about the men in her life. She was also coping with professional difficulties, having recently severed ties with her managerial team, who she feels overworked her and also greedily encouraged her to keep riding the lucrative pop wave to make money. At that point, I just had had it in every sense of the word, she says. I was going through all this personal stuff, even my hair color going dark. I was in a really dark place. As music had been before, Bratman had become a way out of that place. She wrote a song on Back to Basics about finally letting down her guard called Understand. There were many walls you had to climb if you really wanted to be mine. He never hounded her. He became a trustworthy friend, her only shoulder to cry on. Soon enough, the pair were inseparable. A tattoo on her left forearm says in Spanish and Hebrew, I love JB always. This one I got right at the beginning of the strip tour, right in the beginning of Jordan and my relationship. She says before swiveling around and hiking down her pants to show me her latest design on her lower back. This one's my wedding tattoo. In Hebrew, it says, I am beloved and my beloved is mine. The couple married in Napa Valley, California in an emotional ceremony. She considers herself more spiritual than religious. 
I believe in God and I'm connected to my spirit, my inner light, she says, and therefore was totally down with a Jewish wedding service. For probably her first time in her life, she couldn't hold her own on the dance floor. We danced the hora and I didn't know what I was doing at all, but being bounced on the chairs was one of the funnest things in the world. Christina feels like the luckier half of the match. I wouldn't date myself, she says. I ask her what he's like. She says he's got a super comforting, super mellow, warm sincerity about him. I'm so up and down emotionally sometimes, but he's always able to reach in there and pull me out. She's in a better place, but even with her husband sleeping next to her, she still has rough nightmares. It comes out in violence sometimes, says Christina. The other day I dreamt that I was being held at gunpoint, and I had a really bizarre one recently with animals ripping each other's flesh off. It was really graphic and insane. So she consulted a dream interpretation book. I don't know why, but the book said because of that dream, I am destined to something great. With the record coming out, that made me feel really happy. I asked her where I could buy this bizarrely optimistic dream book. However you interpret the dreams, it's clear that Bratman has rescued Christina from the deep, dark place that she's ever capable of coiling herself into. She's protective of him as well. The first time I meet her at Le Du, a nightclub in Hollywood, shout out to Dara, I ask if Jordan will be joining us on our adventure, Miniature Golf. If you're nice to him, she says cautiously. Tonight, Christina is playing the role of a sexy calendar girl and blue jeans rolled up to her calves, red heels, a baby blue sleeveless cashmere hoodie, hair pulled back, and red hot lips. Still, miniature golf is right up her alley. She and Bratman actually rented out the putting edge a couple of nights after we went there for a friend's birthday party. Christina loves nerdy fun and instigates many a late night board game with family or her dancer friends. I break out the taboo in the category, she says. As her driver goes out of the limo to retrieve the bottle of champagne that we picked up on the way to the putting edge, Jordan strolls into the backlit arcade, and Christina cracks a smile. Bratman fits his advanced billing, not too much was revealed to me, but he's obviously chivalrous, confident, kind, and, like a good partner, tries once or twice to help her cheat on her score. It's after midnight, and the newlyweds run around like little kids, facing off in a race car driving game and going head-to-head in air hockey. On the 12th hole of mini-golf, where a player must putt around a large pillar to reach the cup, they go on ahead, and as I'm lining up my putt, they whisper to each other and she plants a sweet kiss on his lips. For that one brief moment behind the pillar, they have the whole world to themselves. Now, we are 20 minutes in, and I think that it is appropriate to start talking about Back to Basics. I feel ready. Christina announced at the 46th annual Grammy Awards in 2004 that she was working on a follow-up to Stripped and that her goal with the project was to evolve as an artist and a visionary. (laughs) Like the most Christina sentence ever. I am a visionary. Um, She also stated in interviews that she had been becoming increasingly frustrated with what technology had done to music because pretty much anyone could release an album at this point, even if you want a visionary. So Christina came up with the idea of doing a double disc where one disc would feature collaborations with people like Mark Ronson and DJ Premier, um, more of like a big band sound with lots of samples and beats. And then disc two would be a live album that would lean more towards this like 1920s, 1930s jazz style. And she brought in Linda Perry specifically to produce the live version of the album. Christina also asked Scott Storch to produce the album, to which he very famously declined because she wouldn't pay for him to fly private to Los Angeles with his entourage. So he wanted Christina to charter him a plane and 
she was like, well, aren't you supposed to be this big, wealthy, balling drug dealer producer? Like, can't you afford a plane? And when she said no, he basically cut ties with her. And this is the peak of Scott Storch being known as this like coked out mess. And I think publicly he was mostly famous for being the guy that was producing Paris Hilton's upcoming album, AKA Scott Storch was the guy that Paris Hilton was fucking for beats and coke. And I guess after their little dispute, he had told Christina that her album would flop without him and that he need or she needed him. And the only reason that stripped was successful was because of his involvement. Um, which is ironic because the biggest singles from the album weren't his, not to say that like can't hold us down and fight or weren't massive singles, but like he didn't write beautiful, you know? And as a response to what he said, Christina wrote a song called F U S S, which stood for fuck you, Scott Storch, where she sings. I actually wrote down all of the lyrics because this is like really iconic. I thought I knew who you were. I see now you were a lesson to learn. And all I am to you now is a bridge that's been burned. Now I was the first to believe I made you part of my musical dream and your thanks to me came without an apology. We wrote loving me for me. Don't walk away. Can't hold us down. All part of our history. Don't forget infatuation. I'm a fighter feeling underappreciated. Yeah, this song is for you to remind you that I moved on. Sang my songs, I've got no regrets, I hope it was all worth it, looks like I didn't need you, still got my album out. (laughs) And I I just love a diss track that is extremely specific to one person and very pointed directly. Like, this is essentially an open letter, I wouldn't even call this a diss track, like it's literally called Fuck You Scott Storch. (laughs) Like, I love, I love the pettiness and the messiness of it. To which he responded, by the way. I worked on half her last CD and sold her millions of copies. Obviously, she cares more that I, than I do that I didn't do her album. But I can't blame her with her album full of fillers, over-singing, and lame Vegas-like cabaret music. Mama, the library is now closed. Like, fuck. Now, we obviously have to talk about the reintroduction of Christina Aguilera as this, like, old Hollywood... 1930s bottle blonde pinup model and we will be doing that with the help of none other than rolling stones weeklies again this article came out in 2006 before the release of the album but after the release of ain't no other man i believe it says pain is rewarding in every capacity christina aguilera tells me after we've spent two days together she's talking about a tattoo needle she acquired some fresh ink commemorating her marriage last november But Christina's interest in pain and pleasure is well documented. It takes a little longer to get up the nerve to ask her about her genital piercing. It's fascinating that Christina Aguilera subjected herself to this. It's an act of reckless courage that speaks volumes about her. This chick is fearless, sensual, unique, and tough. When I bring it up at a Hollywood restaurant as we knock back some sparkling water, Christina's eyes roll back in her head and she gently clenches the tip of her tongue between her teeth. Very Lauren Conrad. I have a high tolerance for pain, she says, but that, (laughs) sorry, that is like so LC. You can't tell me that a girl clenched her tongue in between her teeth and I'm not going to think of Lauren. Um, I have a high tolerance for pain, she says, but that one brought me joy. Christina hasn't lost those defining qualities, but the diamond dazzler between her legs has since been removed. It sits in storage, cataloged alongside the assless chaps and risque stage lingerie of her dark, introverted, dirty phase. 
These days, they are no longer necessary. Inspired by her lifelong love of vintage soul, blues, and jazz, as well as her marriage, Christina, 25, has spent the past couple of years reveling in the mutual joys of the personal and professional satisfaction that has eluded her for so many years. When Christina first struck it big at age 19 in 1999 with Jeannie in a Bottle, she felt confined by the wholesome structures of teen pop. She rebelled on her second album, Stripped, co-writing 14 of her songs, involving herself in the production, pushing sexual boundaries, and transforming herself into a scantily clad alter ego, Xtina. Along the way, she was widely criticized for dressing like a streetwalker and in the memorable elocution of the Saturday Night Live skit, constantly shaking, quote, her man-hungry poon trap. Fuck. But while the personal attacks flew, her music performed. Strips sold 9 million copies worldwide, and the hip-hop-driven single Dirty was followed up by Beautiful, the Words Can't Bring Me Down ballad with a video that took on body issues and sexual identity. The world began to notice that Christina was no one-trick pony. Her new release, Back to Basics, is a double CD of new tricks on which she adds a unique modern twist to the black music that she grew up singing and recasts herself as a modern pinup girl with a penchant for old Hollywood glamour. It was during her world tour supporting Strip that Christina formulated the game plan for her new look and sound, which she says began as an attempt to realize what makes me want to dance, to sing, to love, to appreciate, to enjoy life, and want to make music. So then she goes on to talk about stuff that we've covered at Nauseam, her difficult childhood, and how as a little girl she connected to the pain in blues music because she had so much pain to sing through as a kid, um, and that she, you know, her grandmother taught her about blues and that she would go through her old records and, you know, she essentially released back to basics as an homage to not only like old Hollywood and jazz, but to her grandmother who introduced her to it. Once the strip tour ended, Christina escaped from the public eye, not seeing her on TV or on the news. Her grandmother even called to ask, what's up with you? Christina was laying low, methodically plotting her return to the spotlight. She was also spending quality time with her new man, Jordan Bratman. Soon, though, she had compiled a two-CD mix of songs from her past that would help define her vision to prospective producers. Everything from the Andrew Sisters, Boogie Woogie, Bugle Boy, and vampy numbers from Eartha Kitt to Screamin' Jay Hawkins, I Put a Spell on You, along with Nina Simone's take on the same song, as well as Otis Redding's Tramp, and more modern classics like Gangstar's Ex-Girl to the Next Girl and Exhibit's Get Fucked Up With Me. She sent two CDs out with a mission statement. It's time for me to make a soul record. I want the feel of old with the edge of heavy bottom end of today's club beats and hip-hop influenced tracks. She knew she didn't want to go the obvious route of using A-list hip-hop producers like Kanye West and Timbaland because she felt like they were beat makers not necessarily interested in showcasing a singer's vocal range. Rappers don't need a lot of chord changes to make their shit sound right, she says. She was looking for someone who responded to her CDs of inspiration. DJ Premier of Gangstar was definitely on her wavelength. I figured out that he used tiny snippets of I Put a Spell on You to make Biggie's kick in the door. A lot of people wouldn't get that, but to me, it's genius. She began working with him and her old teammate, Linda Perry, who wrote and produced on Stripped. Pretty soon, Christina saw the project diverging into two paths. Premier's up-tempo tracks created with drum machines, unusual samples, and synths, and Perry's dynamic live instrumentation incorporating strings, horns, and even a Gregorian choir. As the solid tracks piled up, Christina decided on a double album. Her label told her the double album thing was a big mistake, says Perry. And she said, I don't care. So if the album fails or succeeds, she'll have to face up to that. 
but all I know is that the record sounds like nothing else out there. She definitely didn't go the safe route. To me, the record has already succeeded. In the next section, which I'll summarize for you because it's pretty long, they discussed the fact that her label was completely against the double disc thing and that she actually had to fight tooth and nail for them to allow her to release it. And in the end, it was Clive Davis who signed off on the idea and basically told her that if it didn't work, that it would be her fault and that they would make it known that it was her fault. Like she wanted to do this thing and that it was a risk that didn't pay off. Um, she also executive produced the entire album. So every decision about the look and the sound and the instruments and the producers and everything was all completely in her hands. And she wrote a bunch of songs dedicated to Jordan, including uh, Makes Me Want to Pray, Slow Down Baby, and of course, Ain't No Other Man. Christina likes to drink, and she's used alcohol as her secret weapon during her recording sessions with Perry. On Save Me From Myself, another cut about her husband, Christina wanted a vulnerable and raspy timber. We used Maker's Mark on that one, she says. Other cuts called for sake and hot toddies to loosen up her pipes. Sometimes she'd hang out with Perry and talk to the wee hours of the morning over a bottle of wine. Christina is a night owl and hates mornings, preferring to sleep through them if her schedule abides. But when it came time to buckle down, Christina never doweled, doweled. <laughs> Christina never doweled. Uh, when it was time to have fun, we had fun, and there was plenty of nights of drinking wine or whatever, says Perry. But she was also so calm and focused. Throughout the sessions, Christina shocked the veteran Perry with her musical acumen. She's not a player, but she can really explain herself musically, Perry says, adding that Christina's ambitions was constantly pushing her. I don't even know where she gets half that shit from. When we were recording Candyman, I was laughing. It's swing music with a hip-hop beat. When the song comes out as the second single, people are going to go, what the fuck is this shit? It's awesome. Perry also says that Christina's music-making aspirations extend be decades beyond Back to Basics. Christina's got a really big plan here. And only she knows what it is. But I know that 20 years from now, she wants people to refer to her as she refers to Aretha, Nina Simone, and Billie Holiday. She knows that in order to do that, she has to go out on a limb. Say what you will about Back to Basics, but it's impressive for Christina to see such an ambitious undertaking all the way through. Overhauling her image, conceptualizing her album, overseeing every facet of production, down to the CD booklet. It's control freak perfectionism worthy of Madonna. Now let's finally talk about the singles from this album. Christina gave herself an alter ego um, for Back to Basics that she called Baby Jane, which was inspired by the film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And reading that was really confusing for me because I was like, why? <laughs> like, why? Like, what about Betty Davis's character and what Whatever Happened to Baby Jane inspired you to form an alter ego around it like, it's a sad movie about a delusional former child star who's, like, manic. I, I, I don't understand. She also took inspiration from Marilyn Monroe, of course, uh, Marlena Dietrich, and Greta Garbo. Ellen Von Untworth did the photos for the album, which is very on-brand, like, 1920s burlesque pinup, you know, lingerie. That's, like, very, very Ellen Von Untworth. Um... And initially, she got a lot of backlash from critics because they thought she was copying Madonna's bedtime stories aesthetic, which 
I guess looking back, if I was like living in the moment, and the, I mean the album cover, she's posed exactly the same, I guess. But Madonna's bedtime stories thing was not like pin up or whatever. So I don't know. That's a weird thing. That's a weird like, oh, there's another white woman with blonde hair on an album cover wearing red lipstick. It's inspired. She stole. Ain't No Other Man was obviously the first single from this album, and it was super, super, super well-received. Music critics loved this transition. Um, she was received with open arms. Like, it was the complete opposite of, of Stripped. And looking back, like, I couldn't think of a smarter way for Christina to reintroduce herself because it honestly checks every box. If you think about it up to this point, We've had one major transformation from Christina. So to do it again in a way that actually does feel like a very natural progression, I think it's smart and it keeps people engaged and it keeps people on their toes. And it definitely put her in this position of like, what will she do next? Which is necessary for a modern pop star. Even if the, even if the person doesn't want to be known as a pop star because they are an intellectual it also helped remind the public that she wasn't just a gimmick, which is what Stripped ended up being interpreted as for years. You know, this was a reminder that, like, hi, all this shit I've been saying since I was introduced to you at 19 about liking jazz music and digging through my grandma's old records and singing Marvin Gaye to my fucking teddy bears or whatever, it's all real. Like, this is the proof that it's real I wasn't lying. It wasn't made up. I've been saying this shit since I was a kid. I like blues music. I like jazz music. Like it was her sort of like putting her money where her mouth was, honestly. It also lets the world know that she has this crazy encyclopedic knowledge of jazz history and that she really does study jazz and blues music like she's some sort of college professor. Um, and not only that, but that she can write and produce an entire album if you let her like honestly this is some mariah carey shit because you guys know if you listen to my, my mariah carey episode the mariah and tommy that you know a really big discovery for me as somebody who is like a mariah fan but not like i wouldn't say that i'm a lamb if that makes sense mariah carey could write produce and release an entire album completely on her own if she wanted to because her abilities as a musician are so far beyond just being able to sing. And this album proved that Christina could do the same thing. I think it was also just generally easier for people to digest. Like after years of being written about as this like street walking whore with a, as, as Rolling Stone so eloquently put it, man hungry pierced vagina. Um, I mean, that's gotta get old. Like at a certain point, I would imagine as an artist that you also want to be considered when they're looking for people to sing at, you know, Christmas tree lighting ceremonies and stuff. You know, like I also can sing Silent Night. I don't just get on stage and spread my butthole open. You know what I mean? It's got to get really tiring after a while just being criticized obsessively like that for so long. Ain't No Other Man debuted at number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100. It peaked at number six. This was Christina's first top 10 hit since Beautiful. And it was ranked by Billboard at the end of the year as the 32nd most successful hit of the year, 
which is a really weird ranking. I, I mean, I feel like at a certain, it's like the 32nd most successful song. What does that even mean? Billboard really just loves to rank shit. Like any excuse, the 32nd most successful song of the year, like, okay. The other singles included Hurt, which Christina describes as the hardest song to sing in her entire catalog. Um, people are really mixed about that song. I thought that it was universally loved, but then I was reading all these critics talking about how bloated and sort of like overindulgent it is. Um, but I love it. I love that song and I love seeing her sing it. Easily one of her best ballads, like 10 out of 10 would recommend for sure. She also released Candyman, of course, Slow Down Baby and Oh Mother. And one thing that I keep forgetting to mention, like literally, oh, sorry, the Jeepers Creepers truck just fucking went by. I keep going to bed and thinking to myself, oh my God, you dumb bitch. You have to remind yourself to mention that Christina was also endorsing products and shit at this time. I mean, like, I haven't talked about the Skechers ads. I kind of skipped over that with Stripped, but like those iconically tacky Skechers ads, iconic. I still see them pop up all the time all over Instagram. They're just very, very early 2000s and like very Stripped and just very Skechers. Um, she also was uh, endorsed by Coke or no, Pepsi. It was Pepsi. And um, I'm going to refrain from making the obvious comparisons because I know what you're thinking and you know what I'm thinking and you, you know that I'm thinking it and that I want to say it, but I'm not going to because it's the obvious thing to do. So I'm not going to say it, but you know, it's funny, Skechers and Pepsi. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, her Pepsi commercials are fucking insane the one that was released during this time for back to basics it comes up if you youtube christina aguilera pepsi i can guarantee that you will not regret it you will not regret youtubing this fucking commercial it is so cringy it is easily one of the most cringy things that i've ever seen on tv in my entire life for safety reasons, I encourage you to not watch the commercial while operating heavy machinery or driving a vehicle because, mama, you will crash. It is, it's culturally inappropriate. It's cringy. It's kind of too long. It's just, uh, it's a mess. I watched it 40 times. I also found the album reviews to be really interesting because even with her toned down sexuality, these publications either fully didn't get it even still or they were able to finally see beyond the clit ring after four years. Like it was very like either very hot or very cold. There are a lot of people who thought the album was overindulgent and too long and bloated and just too much. Like the double disc thing people either didn't like or they loved. And then there were people who thought that this was like a return to form. This was such a, a natural progression for Christina. It's what she should be doing you know, it's introducing younger people to music that they should know. And it's very like, uh, important to culture and to the future of these young people. Like it was, like I said, very hot or cold, no gray area. This is a New York Post review from 2006. It's a grab bag of neuroses twists that would make any armchair psychologist drool. Daddy fixation, virgin whore complex, and delusions of grandeur. They're all in there in Christina Aguilera's new album, Back to Basics, which arrives in stores on Tuesday. But as Sigmund Freud once said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. If you thought Aguilera's third pop album, which is hard to believe there's only been three since 1999, 
might be a cathartic soul-bearing work of art, think again. Listen to the 1,000-string orchestration in the waltz welcome where Aguilera unveils the disc's essence when she sings, What's behind the smoke and glass? Painted faces. Everybody wears a mask. Translation, there are no confessions here. For this project, the curvy 5'2 waif has turned herself into a sex bomb in the Jean Harlow Marilyn Monroe mold, and she readily shows off her titillating assets in 40 pictures spread throughout the double-disc CD package. Clearly, the 26-year-old's two previous pop albums have taught her that sex sells, whether or not it's packaged well. And every one of the 22 songs here, except for the insufferable fan appreciation tune Thank You, is an expertly wrapped love song sealed with a kiss. Aguilera calls Back to Basics a concept album, but don't look for the concept in her newfound pinup girl image or retro music accents. That's way too obvious. The theme is her exploration of love's many facets, from platonic to perverted. The first disc comprises her usual sample-heavy brand of dance music. There are a few surprises in the consistently fine songwriting and the fusing of her sultry alto with hip-hop beats. On Still Dirty, a horn-powered funk workout, she gets her super freak on with suggestive lyrics and a suggestive growl that her closest vocal rival, Beyonce Knowles, would be crazy in love for. But the real sizzle of Back to Basics comes on the second disc, where Aguilera stretches her voice to read styles as diverse as jazz, blues, and soul, not to mention the eight-to-the-bar boogie rhythms of Candyman. A curmudgeon might toss a wet blanket on Aguilera's fire, accusing the singer of creating an unfocused collection that makes no effort to connect the dots between the jazz of the 1920s and the soul divas of the 60s. But that's a losing argument. She isn't trying to teach us a scattershot history of pop. She's just an entertainer. And these new songs produced in old styles are very entertaining. There's the bluesy I Got Trouble, which sounds like an old 78 RPM recording because Aguilera used a bass drum microphone wrapped in cloth to muffle the highs of her voice. Nasty Naughty Boy finds Aguilera at her sexiest. Forget about her Lolita-like debut in Stripped. On this one, she vamps her way through like Shirley Bassey belting out Big Spender. She teases her way through the song's thinly-veiled ooh-la-la double entendres, begging for, quote, icing on her cake and sweetening the deal by offering the, quote, sugar below her waist. Even though Aguilera reveals little about herself, Back to Basics is a testament that she has more depth than, depth than Beyonce and more staying power than Britney. <laughs> It'll even make you wonder if Mary J. Blige actually is the rightful heir to Aretha's Queen of Soul crown. Can I say something controversial about Mary J. Blige? And we can do a Mary J. Blige episode one day if that's like a thing that this turns into. But like, she is literally one of the worst singers in the history of, of, of music. Like Mary J. Blige live is insane. She sounds like all of my aunts drunk on every holiday that we've ever had where there's music playing. The fact that Mary J. Blige is known as the queen of soul is literally so psychotic to me. And I have theories and thoughts and things. I've thought about this for many years and now I can boldly say Mary J. Blige can't fucking sing. Like she has some really great songs, iconic songs, staples in pop culture, but she cannot sing. Anyway, <laughs> um, so as I was doing research for this episode, I noticed this spike during 2006 of negative press surrounding Christina Aguilera and her mistreatment of the press. Um, she had become known as the girl who would show up places, you know, three to four hours late, specifically for these scheduled interviews where the interviewer would be sitting at some diner or, 
you know, a music hall or whatever waiting for her. And she started this thing in 2006 where she refused to make eye contact with interviewers. And at first I thought it was a troll. I was like, well, no, that's obviously not true. That's like some weird, like, you know, early 2000s internet, like weird thing. But then I remembered that her mom had to address it on her website when she was doing like the rumor mill section of her website. And I kept reading about it in all these different publications that Christina doesn't allow interviewers to like look at her or something, or she won't look at them. Um, but I don't know. I found this really funny quote from Celeb Bitchy in 2006. You know it was from 2006 if it's Celeb Bitchy. It says, Christina Aguilera is such a diva. Not only does she arrive hours late for most every schedule, for mostly every scheduled interview, she also refuses to look interviewers in the eye. She insists that the room is darkly lit and sits facing the other way while she answers questions. Christina Aguilera has always had a diva attitude, arriving hours late for everything, big demands and feuds with everyone from Mariah to Kelly Osbourne. But now, with the release of her new album, she's learned a new trick. During promo interviews, she refused to look at any journalist instead. Any journalist. Instead, the diva insists that the interviewer, for which she's usually two or four hours late to, takes place in a dimly lit room where she sits and stares in the other direction completely to the to the journalist while they ask her questions so she literally turns her chair makes the room pitch black (laughs) and forces them to like i guess look at the side of her face i don't fucking know um And then she also ignited this feud with Mariah Carey in 2006 that's gone on now for years. It all started in May when Christina told GQ magazine that Mariah was never, in quotes, cool to her. She said, one time we were at a party and I think she got really drunk or something and she had just really derogatory things to say to me. But it was at the same time that she had that mental breakdown. So she may have been very medicated. Eek. To which Mariah responded, I had hoped that Christina was in a better place now that now than the last time I saw her when she showed up uninvited at one of my parties and displayed questionable behavior. It is sad yet predictable that she would use my name at this time to reinvent past incidents for her promotional gain. It is in my heart to forgive and I will keep her in my prayers. And that, I mean, honestly, it all checks out because as mentioned for the past couple weeks now, on top of the fact that Christina has, you know, this drinking problem that every year is increasingly getting worse and worse and worse up until like 2011, I think, when it all kind of spirals out of control. Um, she started becoming known as the girl who would show up to these like Hollywood parties uninvited, like to celebrities parties. And she would cause such a ruckus that, you know, obviously people would talk about it. Sometimes even the celebrity, in the case of Mariah Carey, would give an exclusive and be like, um, yeah, she showed up to my party uninvited and she was too drunk and she caused a scene. Like, it was like a thing that was happening a lot. Um, I mean, we're not going to get to it for a couple more episodes, but Christina's showing up to Jeremy Piven's birthday party and passing out naked in his bed is one of the most iconic Hollywood stories of all time. And uh, I don't know, I guess I'll leave it there. I, I, I feel good about leaving it here. We're at like 47 minutes. I know we're a little bit short today, but I feel good about leaving this where it is.
and we will move on next week. I got to start like knocking these albums out, especially now, because I'm going to be honest with you. They are going to begin meaning less to me. <laughs> I, I, I don't, um, I don't know how much I'm going to be able to like go deeply into them because I just don't care. Or what will end up happening is I'll end up caring so much because I'll do all this research and realize that they're iconic. And from what I gather, Bionic is like her art pop in a sense. And I believe Bionic was the one that Perez Hilton ruined, right? Or was that a different one later? I don't know. I'll find out in my notes. But I love you guys. Um, yeah, I, I will see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Dunzo. This podcast is a part of the Solid Listen Network. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. Also be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash solidlisten for exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.